Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17 this morning, please. Following the events of Jesus' birth, Matthew 3 and 4 jump forward 30 years into the future to the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Hence, Matthew 3 and 4 are noted as introducing Jesus, the Messiah, to the world. The first significant event introducing the Messiah is the baptism of Jesus here in Matthew 3, 13 to 17. To set the stage for Jesus' baptism, Matthew presented John the baptizer. And since Jesus is the messianic king, John is his herald. And as the herald, John prepared the way for Jesus' message and ministry. Jesus' message was to repent and believe the gospel. And that was the same message that John preached. It was the message the disciples and the apostles preached. And some 2,000 years later, that is the same message that the church is to preach to a lost and dying world. Just as John's ministry involved baptism, so did Jesus' ministry. Jesus came as a Savior in His first advent. And shortly after His ascension into heaven, Jesus baptized His followers with the Holy Spirit. Baptism with the Holy Spirit is the act whereby every believer, all believers, are placed into the metaphorical body of Christ, the universal church. Now when Jesus returns for his second advent, he'll come as judge. And at that time, he is going to baptize with fire. His angels will gather and assemble all the righteous and the unrighteous living at the end of the tribulation. The righteous will be judged and gathered into the heavenly kingdom. The unrighteous will be judged and cast into a fiery hell, awaiting their final punishment in the lake of fire. The casting of the unrighteous into hell is the baptism of with fire. Now, as we noted, John did not baptize with the Holy Spirit or fire, but with water. And within Judaism, there were three primary reasons for baptism repentance, cleansing, and identification. In preparation for the Day of Atonement, Jewish people would repent of their sins and present themselves to a priest to be baptized at a mikvah a pool of water. And those who recovered from illness associated with bodily fluid discharges were to baptize or immerse themselves in water to testify of their cleansing. Any Gentile who wanted to convert to Judaism would also be required to be baptized to identify with their repentance of sin, cleansing from paganism, and identification with God and His people. We might call this third baptism the Baptism of identification or proselyte baptism. Now back in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 4, it confirms for us that people were being baptized by him, that's John, in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Undoubtedly, John's baptism demonstrated the people's repentance and cleansing from sin. However, it is also a baptism of identification. Paul says in Acts chapter 19, verse 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. You see, John was calling people to a once-for-all repentance that involved turning from their old life to a new life. And so his baptism was not only for repentance and for cleansing, but also an identification, a proselyte baptism, if you will, whereby they were leaving behind their old life and embracing a new life. For the Jews of John's day, their old life was built around the pharisaical teaching of ancestral salvation through Abraham. As long as you were related to Abraham, you've got to shoe in. John quickly points out that being Abraham's biological descendant would not save anyone. Genuine salvation is granted only through repentance of sin and belief in the Messiah's salvific work. And when John called them to repent, they did not just repent of some sin, but repented of their belief in ancestral salvation and put their faith and trust, their belief, in the Messiah as their Savior from all sin 
and its curse, the lake of fire. Those people were being converted, and their baptism of repentance was indeed a proselyte baptism. F.F. Bruce stated this, If John's baptism was an extension of proselyte baptism to the chosen people, then his baptism, like his preaching, meant that even the descendants of Abraham must enter by repentance and baptism just as the Gentiles had to do also. John practiced a baptism of repentance. You know, and the question for all of us to, to deal with is have we repented of our sins? Have we answered that call to repent? Have you left behind your old life? And not just repented of your sin, but then turned, put your trust in the fact that the Son of God came and died for our sin, died to pay the penalty to save us from the lake of fire, and he did that by shedding his blood, being buried and risen again on the third day. So make sure that you've done that business between you and God. The other side of it is that, uh, as we see through the New Testament, once you are saved, you're to be baptized. And if there's someone that hasn't been baptized, uh, they've, made, they, they've repented of their sins, they've made a profession of faith, uh, in the words of the Ethiopian, what hinders you? What's stopping you? And so if you haven't been saved, get it right with God. If you haven't been baptized, get it right and get it done. Because you want to be obedient. That's the first, one of the first things that we can do to be obedient to the Lord. Now, throughout the year, throughout the Jewish liturgical year, there was a specific reason or season, a reason and a season, when the Jewish people participated in repentance baptism. Now, this is very important to understand, especially in light of our text today. Between Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, there would be a season of repentance. Now, that is a 10-day period, usually in September, or what the Jewish people would call the month Tishra, T-I-S-H-R-I. So Rosh Hashanah, or the Feast of Trumpets, started this 10-day period. It, Rosh Hashanah is also known as Yom Hadin, Yom Hadin, the Day of Judgment. And that day, the, day of, the first day of Rosh Hashanah, marks the beginning of what they call 10 days of penance, or 10 days of repentance. Again, you have two days for Rosh Hashanah, one day for Yom Kippur on the other end. Between the first two feasts and the last feast day, there are seven days that they call seven days of awe, or seven days to repent. And it is during those seven days that people must repent of their sin before the Day of Atonement sacrifice. That Day of Atonement sacrifice symbolizes the sin offering that Christ is going, well, Christ has from our vantage point already made, but that sin offering that they were looking forward to to forgive their sins. But that sacrifice, that sin offering, would have no effect on them if they did not repent. And so... As, this, as the Day of Atonement drew close, throngs of people were confessing their sins, and in this case, coming to John to baptize them. Because they're in the middle of Rosh Hashanah and the seven days of all. Now, Matthew's inclusion of Jesus' baptism is essential because it serves as the commencement of his ministry. The baptism narrative is equally important, and I want everybody to listen carefully. This narrative demonstrates the triunity of the Godhead, what we call the Trinity. Yahweh is three persons who coexist as one God. The revelation of the triunity of the Godhead is set forth first and foremost in, in, in a decree of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now the name Lord, Yahweh, is singular. But the title God, Elohim, is plural. When we join Yahweh, a singular noun, with Elohim, the plural noun, and we attach it or we hitch it to the term one, chad, what it does for us is it demonstrates a plurality of persons that share a oneness. 
a plurality of persons that share a oneness. The oneness of the Godhead means that all three persons equally share in the same essence and attributes. And while they all share the same essence and attributes, they're yet undivided. The individual nature of God is best demonstrated by the mathematical formula, one times one times one equals one. Oneness also indicates that the individual persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, cannot act independently of one another. The Son is not going to act independently of the Father. The Spirit's not going to act independently of the Son. The Father's not going to act independently of the Spirit, and so on. Now, despite the truth that we see outlined here in Scripture, despite the truth we're going to see affirmed in Matthew 3, 13 to 17, three false views have been propagated down through the centuries and are inflicting themselves upon the church today. The first is what is called tritheism. Tritheism purports that these three gods are independent and have no unity. Another simple way to remember tritheism is it's a a new name for old polytheism. It's a worship of more than one god. Then we have Arianism. Arianism teaches that God the Father is an eternal being who created the Son, and then the Son in turn created the Holy Spirit. So we have a creator and a creature and some impersonal force. The third, and this is the most dangerous, modalism, this is purported by uh, many Pentecostal and charismatic churches, it claims that God is a single entity who reveals himself in three different modes. So he existed in the Old Testament as the Father, he existed in the New Testament as the Son, and today he exists as the Holy Spirit. So modalism says God can only exist as the Father, then he can only exist as the Son, and now he only exists as the Holy Spirit. He cannot be all three. My friends, that is heresy. That is a clear denial of the teaching of Scripture, and we are going to see today all three persons of the Godhead at the same time, simultaneously, all acting, all doing. Which is confirmation that our God is one. But that one God is made up of three persons. We have many scriptures. We won't take the time this morning to go through them, but many scriptures demonstrate that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But again, I don't think there's any one text more critical than Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 to 17. Because this text demonstrates that God simultaneously coexists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So as we consider the baptism of Jesus this morning, I'd like us to start in verses 13 to 15, because the baptism of Jesus begins with the Son's authorization. The Son's authorization, Matthew 3, 13 to 15. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. Notice the opening statement. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized. The word then, toda. We've seen it before. It's a temporal marker denoting a specific time of John's baptism, denoting a specific time of Jesus' arrival. Now, for a moment, I'd like to go to the book of Luke and the third chapter of Luke, verses 1 and 2. Now, I have been consistent in teaching that all Scripture is inspired by God. Genesis through Revelation. And when I say all Scripture is inspired by God, that means everything in it is profitable for teaching, for instruction, etc., etc., to thoroughly equip us for service. And that means that when something is in the Scripture, such as what we have in Luke 3, 1-2, there must be a reason. Yahweh is not Charles Dickens. He's not being paid by the word. He specifically puts words here for a very particular reason. Luke chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias the tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he came in all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, to be honest, we would read Luke chapter 3, and you would probably focus on the last part. Oh, the word of God came to John. He was in the wilderness, and he was preaching and baptizing. But do you understand that what we have there in verse 1 is given to us by God for a very specific reason? Remember, Luke is writing to prove to unbelieving Gentiles who Jesus is, that he is the Son of Man, that he is the Son of God. And so John is going to give us every piece of evidence to support his findings. Again, under the inspiration, under the direction of the Holy Spirit. So let's begin with the 15th year of Tiberius. Because we see here that John's ministry of baptism began when Tiberius was in the 15th year of his reign. In August of AD 14... Tiberius became Caesar. Now, beginning in A.D. 14, if I add 15 years, that would bring me to A.D. 29. Now, that's a problem. Because in A.D. 29, Jesus died. Now, how could Tiberius' 15 year be A.D. 29? That would leave no room for Jesus or John's ministries. And so some may say, well, look, there's a, there's a mistake in the Scripture. The scripture is not inerrant. However, we must consider the way in which Tiberius came into power. When the Roman Senate declared Augustus Caesar, they did so on the condition that his authority would end at death. Upon his death, the Senate would then choose a new emperor of their own choosing. Augustus circumvented this by appointing a co-regent to whom he conferred power. And so in AD 4, Augustus adopts his son-in-law as his legal heir. And his legal heir became Tiberius. And as of AD 11, Tiberius begins co-reigning with Augustus. And if we work from AD 11, August of AD 11, and go forward 15 years, guess what? It brings us to AD 26. John's ministry and Jesus' ministry begins in A.D. 26. So when did Jesus come to John to be baptized? A.D. 26. And by the way, how many years of ministry did Christ have? Three years, 26 to 29. There's your three years of ministry. Now more specifically, we can get even more specific with that little word then. It was the fall of A.D. 26. How do you know that, Pastor? Well, but let me back up the train for a moment. The biblical evidence supports Jesus' birth occurring in the fall, not in the winter, and indeed not on December 25th. Several points that you ought to consider. First of all, John the baptizer was conceived after his father Zechariah completed his priestly duty. We know that from Luke 1, 23 24. We can pinpoint, because this text tells us when his priestly duty was, we can pinpoint that to about the second or third week of Savan, equivalent to our May-June. We know that John would have been born nine months later. So nine months later would put John's birth in the month of Nisan. Nisan would be our March-April. That would be the season of Passover. We know that Jesus was conceived six months after John. So if John was conceived sometime in Saban or May, June, Jesus is conceived six months later in the month of Kislev, which is approximately uh, December, January. Nine months later brings us to the month Tishra, again Luke one twenty-six. Tishra coincides to the uh, end of August, beginning of uh, September. Jesus' birth also, according to Luke 2, occurred while the shepherds were tending their sheep in the fields. Well, guess what? Sheep were housed in the side during the months of 
are October and November, the month of Heshvan. So there's no way that there are sheep out in the field in the month of December. It's cold, it's wet, it's rainy. Now, if you're still in Luke, look at Luke 3 and verse 23. Luke 3 and verse 23. The text tells us that Jesus began his ministry following his baptism when he was what? About 30 years of age. In other words, Jesus' baptism and his ministry started at the beginning of his 30th year. Now, Jesus was born in the month of Tishra. We can, we've stated that. We know that he was born in 5 B.C. So if I work from 5 B.C. forward, the beginning of his 30th year would have occurred in the month of Tishra, A.D. 26. All of these little statements we have in Scripture aren't simply there to fill the page. They're there to confirm for us the historical evidence that Jesus came at a point in time, at the appointed time, in the fulfillment of time. And the evidence is all there. What makes this even more significant is that Rosh Hashanah occurs at the beginning of Tishra. It's the first two days of Tishra. The people are celebrating Rosh Hashanah by what? Repenting of their sin, preparing for the Day of Atonement in ten days. They're coming to John to be baptized. And Jesus came to be baptized in AD 26 at the precise time of Rosh Hashanah. And what is the message of Rosh Hashanah? Repent. And what was the message that Jesus went on preaching? Repent. Again, lotus our text in Matthew. Then Jesus arrived. That word arrived, uh, paragonomai. It's the same term we saw back in verse 3. John came. It denotes the arrival of an official. Now, John came as the herald. Jesus arrives as the king. And he came from Galilee to the Jordan. That's a 60-mile journey he made. 60-mile journey. And his arrival at the Jordan River is his first recorded public appearance. Now, Jesus' reason for coming to John is what? Matthew says to be baptized by him. Be baptized. Baptizo. That's an aorist passive infinitive. I tell you that because it's, it's given to emphasize purpose. Jesus didn't come on a willy-nilly chance of seeing John. He just wasn't in the neighborhood. He came there for a reason. He came there for a purpose. He was not accidental but purposeful, even divinely planned. He wanted to be immersed by John. Now being cousins, John and Jesus knew each other. According to John 1.29, when he saw Jesus approaching, he says what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Turn over to John 1 for a moment. We're going to stay there for a second. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now when John makes that statement, he acknowledges his knowledge and his belief that his cousin was the Messiah sent to redeem humanity. But I want you now to look at John chapter 1 and verse 31. We found another mistake in Scripture. No, it's not a mistake. We just simply may not understand what is meant. Okay, John chapter 1, verse 31. John says, this is what he's reporting to the people there. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifest to Israel, I came baptizing in water. Now you stop and scratch your head and say, well, wait a minute. How in John 1, 29, as he sees Jesus coming, does he say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But then in verse 31 says, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifest in Israel, I came baptized in water. This must be a mistake. There must be a problem in the text. No, there's not. You see, verse 31 is a continuation of what he started saying in verse 29. And all he is simply doing is explaining to the crowd, this is who Jesus is, and while I've known Jesus, it wasn't until God revealed his true identity to me that I recognized him as the Messiah. See, basically what happens there, he says, hey, here comes the Lamb of God. Then he explains, well, how do you know he's the Lamb of God? Listen, I've known Jesus, 
we're cousins. But there was a day when God spoke to me. God revealed specifically to me that he was the Messiah. So yeah, I didn't recognize him for years. But now I do, and this is who he is, and this is what he's come to do. So again, we don't have a mistake here. John's not saying two different things. We just need to understand John's simply giving an explanation to the crowd. I knew him. God revealed him, his true identity. So now I not only know him, but I know him as the Messiah. And that's why I started this ministry. That's why I'm out here baptizing for repentance. Now, look back at verse 29. John's statement, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What a, what a statement. But there's some wordplay here. Now understand, we have the text, you have it in English, originally we have it in Greek. But understand that John wasn't necessarily speaking in Greek. He was most likely speaking in his native tongue, which would have either been Hebrew or Aramaic. So let me show you a little interesting wordplay here. In Aramaic, the word lamb, taya, is the same as servant. So the word taya means sheep or it means servant. Now, that means that John is declaring, if he's speaking in Aramaic, that he's declaring that Jesus is not only the lamb but the servant of God. This fits Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 verse 7 says, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. So Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus would be a sheep. But Isaiah 53 verse 11 says, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. So in the Aramaic tongue, when he said, behold the Lamb of God, he's not only announcing that, yes, he's the sheep of Isaiah 53, but here's the servant of Isaiah 53. And there's no reason to doubt that he would have been speaking Aramaic. Some of the people would have spoken Aramaic. I also think that he possibly could have spoken this in Hebrew. And if he spoke it in Hebrew, the word lamb, which in the Hebrew tongue is sheh, S, more of a sh sound, but S-E-H. This word's interesting because in Hebrew, the term can be rendered as either sheep or goat. Thus, John could have been announcing in Hebrew, Behold the goat of God who takes away the sins of the world. Oh no, pastor, we can't call Jesus a goat. The scripture says he's the lamb. I'm not debating that the scripture says he's the lamb. Indeed, he is the Passover lamb. But is it possible that he's also the goat of God? The theological weight of that statement cannot be ignored. Yes, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Paul makes that abundantly clear. And as the Passover lamb, uh, he died, he shed his blood to initiate the new covenant, what's called a threshold covenant. Now, in the ancient Near East, if you wanted to get hitched, if you wanted to get married, the bride and groom's family would have to come to the threshold, the door, they'd have to sacrifice a lamb, and that blood would have to be poured out on the threshold. And then that bride and groom would step over the threshold. And when they stepped over the threshold, when they stepped over the blood, when they passed over it, they were signifying their bond together. By the way, if you wanted to get a divorce, you had to go back to the threshold and you had to stamp your foot over the threshold by which you would be stamping underfoot the blood. Think about what Paul says in Hebrews. Don't be guilty of trampling underfoot the blood of Jesus. That precious blood of Jesus is what enables the church to be wed to him. Now this goes back to ancient Egypt. You'll recall in Exodus 12 that a lamb was slaughtered in Egypt at the threshold of every Israelite house. And the blood was poured into the threshold. Exodus 12 says this blood in the threshold will be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood I will what? Pass over you. That evening, seeing the blood, what did Yahweh do? He passed over the thresholds of the Israelite houses. He took Israel as his bride that night. And just as later Jesus died as the Passover lamb outside the gate of Jerusalem, the threshold of heaven, his death and blood on the threshold enables God to pass over all who repent, believe, and secure them as the bride of Christ. But my friends, the Passover lamb is not a sin offering lamb. The Passover lamb is not a sin offering. 
The sin offering cannot be made until the Day of Atonement. Listen, that's September. Passover is March, April. Leviticus 16 details the events that culminate on the Day of Atonement. On that day, the high priest sets two goats before the people at the doorway, at the threshold of the tabernacle, later the temple. The first goat is sacrificed as a sin offering. Its blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat to cover the people's sin. The second goat was the scapegoat. The high priest would then place his hands on the scapegoat, read the people's sins aloud, and that act symbolically placed the people's sins on the scapegoat. The scapegoat was then driven into the wilderness. By covering and removing sin, atonement could be made for the people. Now listen to the words of Paul in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12. Jesus offered one sacrifice for sin for all time. Because his death was once for all time, he didn't have to be sacrificed a second time. That means, yes, when he died, he could die as the Passover lamb, but he also could be dying in the future as the Day of Atonement goat. Jesus became the sin offering goat to be offered on a future Day of Atonement. Indeed, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now that word sin in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21 uh, is the word hamartia, important word. Because in the Septuagint, that word translates both sin and sin offering. So what is Paul saying here? Christ knew no sin. He did not have a sin nature. But he became the what? The sin offering on our behalf. And in the heavenly temple, Jesus' blood is sprinkled upon the mercy seat, which is going to cover the sins of the repentant. In Hebrews 9.12, through his own blood, he entered into the holy place once for all, having obtained redemption. So Jesus is the sin offering goat. He's also the scapegoat because the people's sins were laid upon that scapegoat on the day of atonement. Listen to Isaiah 53 and verse 6. The Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to be what? Placed on Him. Leviticus 16, 21 and 22 says that when the, when the sins had been laid on the scapegoat, it was led away into the wilderness by the hand of a man and He'll release the goat in the wilderness. If, you're still, if you go back to Matthew, I want you to look at Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. What does Matthew 4, 1 report? After his baptism, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, where? Into the wilderness. Behold the goat of God who takes away the sins of the world. This goat of God is the sin offering and the scapegoat. What must have gone through the heads of those people as they heard prophecy begin to be fulfilled? Now let's go back to Matthew 3. Matthew informs his readers that John tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you and you come to me. Now that word prevent, diakaluo, very interesting word. It means this. John was forcibly and verbally attempting to stop Jesus from being baptized. Now, this isn't like Peter, who tried to stop Jesus from going to the cross. There's no repudiation by Jesus of John. John did not understand. You see, John's mindset was this. I came to baptize the repentant. I refused a day ago to baptize the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they're not worthy. I'm not going to baptize you, Jesus, because you're too worthy. You have no sin. In fact, I'm a sinner who needs to be baptized by you. But look at Jesus' response. Permit it at this time. Permit it. That word permit, it's another word play. It comes from the Greek word ephemi, which is the word usually forgive. Okay? But it can also mean to give consent. To give consent. So in other words, when he says permit it, he's not asking forgiveness of sins. 
He's asking John, permit it, allow it, consent to baptizing me. And after hearing Jesus' reasoning, John what? Permits it. He consents to Jesus' request. Now, what's Jesus' reasoning? He says, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, the word righteousness, and we've studied this in Matthew chapter 5, and 6 and 7. Righteousness, diakonusin, is obedience to God and his law. We're to fulfill all law. The word fulfill, parao, means to cause God's will is made known in his law to be obeyed as it should be. In other words, Christ says, listen, we've got to do this so that I'm obeying the law. And that what Jesus did, he obeyed God in every point of the law. So where in the law does it require Christ to be baptized? Well, back in Leviticus 8.6, Moses and Aaron, or Moses had Aaron and his sons come near and wash them with water. This was a ceremonial cleansing so that they could be anointed for priestly service. And so Jesus was obeying God's law. He came to be a priest, but he had to be what? Ceremonially cleansed to be a priest. And the only one who could ceremoniously cleanse him to be a priest is someone who was a priest. And was John a priest? Yes, he's the son of the priest. So he's a priest too. So John performs the ceremonial purification for priestly service. And as such, Jesus is now commissioned to be a priest. Psalm 110 verse 4. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. Speaking to the Son, he says, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so by submitting to baptism, he obeyed the law. He went through ceremony of purification. He had the right to be priest. He was also identifying himself with the people. Now let's move to verse 16. Because the baptism of Jesus continues with the Spirit's anointing in Matthew 3.16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Came up. When? After being baptized. Now that implies upward movement. Okay? This is confirmation that baptism is what? It's immersion into the water. He came up out of the water. He was in the water. He's out of the water. And as he came out of the water, behold... That word behold, adieu. Pay attention. Something important happened. The heavens were opened. And that word opened there, it's aorist tense, means this is an actual visible phenomena. Okay? Heaven literally opened up. Just like in Ezekiel 1.1, Ezekiel said the heavens were opened and I saw the visions of God. In Acts 7, Stephen said, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. John reports the same thing in Revelation 4.1. So the heavens opening is a unique opportunity where it's miraculous, whereby God allows certain individuals to peer into the third heaven where he dwells. Now the only two that saw the heaven opened were John and Jesus. The crowd did not see the heavens open. Matthew notes that he saw. Who's the he? That's John. John saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Who's the him? Jesus. Now remember, the Holy Spirit's a spirit. He's incorporeal. He doesn't have flesh and blood like we have. And so in order to be seen by human eyes, he took on a form, the form of a dove. Back in John chapter 1, verse 33, John the baptizer said that God told him who the Messiah would be. And then he also said, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So John sees the heaven open. He sees the dove, the spirit, as a dove. He's not a dove. He appears as a dove. This goes back to the flood, folks. Remember when the flood ended and the waters began to abate, Noah sent out a dove. The first time, the dove returned with nothing. The second time, the dove returned with a budding olive branch. The third time, the dove did not return at all. From that moment, the dove became a harbinger of peace and a symbol of hope. And the idea even of extending an olive branch goes back to that event, and it's a symbol of peace. But it's also, his appearance as a dove is also rooted in the law. In Leviticus 5 and 12, we're told that if a person cannot afford a lamb, if they're too poor, they can bring two doves for a sacrifice. 
A woman, when her days of purification are complete, after the birth of her child, she can bring two doves as a sin offering. And so because the dove is perceived to be pure, it was acceptable for a sin offering. God provided the dove as a sacrificial animal for poor people. And as such, the dove symbolizes that God provides a sacrifice for all, even the poor of the world. Now, when the Holy Spirit appeared as a dove and came upon Jesus, three things are demonstrated. Number one, the Holy Spirit demonstrated that Jesus had come to establish peace between God and man. Two, he demonstrated that Jesus was the world's only hope to deal with the curse of sin. And three, the Holy Spirit descended as a dove to demonstrate that Jesus was a sacrifice for all people. And when the Holy Spirit descended upon him, it was also an anointing. You know, when someone became a priest, they first had to be cleansed, but then they had to be anointed. In fact, all through the Old Testament, starting back in Exodus 28, Moses anointed Aaron and his sons. Jesus has just been ceremoniously cleansed to be a priest. But now he needs to be anointed. Isaiah 61 verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. If you go over to Luke 4, we're not going to take the time, but Luke 4 reports that Jesus opened the book, turned to Isaiah, and read, Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me and he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So when the Holy Spirit came upon him at the baptism, he anointed him. So he, he, he's been ceremoniously cleaned and now anointed to be a priest for his people. John the baptizer said in John 12, 32, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. Peter says in Acts 10, 38, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. Luke 4 says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And so we have the Spirit's anointing. We have the Son's authorization. And finally, in verse 17, we have the Father's authentication. The Father's authentication. Behold, a voice out of heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Notice again that word behold. Adieu. Pay attention. Some important detail. The heavens open in verse 16, but now there's a heavenly voice. Now, Jesus says in John 5, verse 37, The Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither seen, or excuse me, you have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. So Jesus testifies very clearly, no one has ever heard the voice of God. Okay? Or at least the Father. Anytime God has spoken in the Old Testament then, it has to be another member of the Godhead. Indeed, John 1.1 confirms, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. In other words, anytime God spoke in the Old Testament, it was not the Father speaking, it was the Son speaking. Okay? Jesus is the Word. He's the divine messenger. Again, John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, the Son of God, the, who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. But this heavenly voice does not belong to Jesus. Jesus is in the water. It's not the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit's in the form of a dove. This is the Father. How do you know? My beloved Son. God all of a sudden speaks. Now, if no one has ever heard him speak, how can the Father possibly be speaking? Was Jesus lying? Didn't the crowd hear it? Didn't John hear it? Apparently not. Because Jesus says, no one has ever heard my Father. So apparently the only one who heard, Jesus, or heard that voice was Jesus. The John saw the Spirit, but he didn't hear the voice. Jesus heard the voice. Now Matthew says, this is my beloved Son. Matthew reports it in the third person. But over in Luke and Mark... When they give their recording of this event, here's how it's recorded. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. In other words, God was speaking, not to everybody, 
only to Jesus. Only Jesus heard that voice. Well, is that a conflict? No. Listen, in, in literal interpretation of any kind of document, uh, literal interpretation allows for generalization and approximations in the recording of the same event by different human writers. Okay? Matthew's just reporting it in the third person. Luke gives us a recording in the first person of what, uh, you know, from the Father's perspective. And then he says, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. What God does here is he combines two Old Testament prophecies, Psalm 2-7 and Isaiah 42-1, into one statement. This is my beloved son. He is the victorious king in whom I am well pleased. He's the suffering servant. Psalm 2-7, I'll surely tell you the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Now, that's what the father is speaking. He's quoting Psalm 2-7, you are my son. Now, if we were to take the time, and we won't, but if we go through Psalm 2-7, we find out that Psalm 2-7, the psalmist here, is Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One. He is telling us what the Father said to him in eternity past. You are my son. Since the Messiah was there with the Father in eternity past, that means both of them must be what? Eternal. And if they are both eternal, they must both be God. And indeed, that's the case. We have a plurality of multiple people in one Godhead, but acting like one. You are my son. This is a father-son relationship. But let's be clear here. The Hebrew word for son can denote an offspring, but it can also denote someone in the same class or someone in the same category. So when he says you're my son, he's not saying you're my offspring, but you're in the same class as me. We're equal in essence, in character, in attributes. You are God and I am God. Listen, as the son of God, Jesus was never born. As the son of man, he was birthed. But as the son of God, he is eternal. So eternally God, in eternity past, it was appointed that he would be the messianic king brought forth on a specific day. And that specific day was the day of his incarnation. And his identification by God authenticates his messianic kingship here at his baptism. So the spirit authenticates his priesthood, anointing the priesthood, but the father's announcement here authenticates his kingship. He's my son, he's well beloved, and I'm well pleased. This goes right back to Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, my beloved one, in whom my soul delights. I love the word beloved here. It means that he is the unique one. Now, I understand, we get that understanding by going back to the Septuagint. Because the word agapetas in the Septuagint renders the Hebrew word yachid. Yachid. Genesis 22.2. God said to Abraham, take now your son, your only son, whom you love. The word only there, yachid, or agapetas, beloved. Take your beloved son, your only son, your unique son, whom you love. So Isaac was unique, why? Because he was born to Sarah long after Sarah was able to conceive and bear children. Jesus is the unique son because there's no other son of God. There's no other being out there that is eternal that bears that title. And he's well pleased. The father takes pleasure in approving something. In essence, the father says to the son, I find pleasure in your uniqueness because you're serving as the messianic savior of humanity. Friends, the baptism of Jesus presents several theological truths that underscore Jesus' identity and ministry. His ministry begins with his baptism. His baptism executes his purification and anointing as priest to the priesthood. His priesthood equips him to be the sanctifier and the sacrifice. And his sacrifice exposes him as the sin offering goat and the scapegoat. 
Additionally, the baptism of Jesus' narrative here in Matthew 3 is a proof text of the doctrine of the Trinity. All three persons of the Godhead are actively present. The Son is baptized. The Holy Spirit descends. The Father speaks. Contrary to false and heretical views of the Trinity, God is one God and three persons simultaneously. If you deny the triunity of the Godhead, you deny the text of Scripture. You're denying exactly what the Scripture says. And my friend, you have just taken a link out of a very important chain. Because if the Trinity isn't real, then the Scriptures lie. And if the Scriptures lie, then they've lied about everything, including Jesus Christ died, shed His blood, was buried, and rose again the third day for the forgiveness of your sins. We cannot negotiate with heresy. We cannot give away the doctrine of the triunity of God. Nor can we give away the baptism of Jesus because it is the linchpin that takes him from a baby born in Bethlehem to the prophesied messianic priest and king who stands as the mediator between us and God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God, we come to you through your son, the king, our priest, who mediated a new covenant between us and you who shed his blood to deal with our sin problem to remove the curse of sin to remove your wrath to remove the penalty of the lake of fire and Father God as we approach you we approach in humility Father I, I, I praise you that you have demonstrated yourself uniquely in this text to be three persons one God in a unique moment that are very few in Scripture, but in this unique moment, all three members of the Godhead are present on earth, as it were. The sun in the water, the spirit in the sky, and the voice descending out of heaven to be heard by the God-man on earth. Father God, forgive us when we lose sight of the preciousness of this event. Forgive us, Father, when we just bounce around this text, read it, and pass it off as though there's nothing important. The events that transpired there in A.D. 26, in September of A.D. 26, demonstrate who your Son is. Indeed, He is, as John proclaimed, the one who takes away the sins. He is both Passover lamb, He is the sin offering goat, and He is the scapegoat. And Father, we thank You for that threefold ministry. Because, Lord, through that threefold ministry, we today can come and know that we have a relationship with Your Son. We are His espoused bride. And Father, we also know that because he was that sin offering, that scapegoat, our sin is removed, it's remembered no more. And when your son presents us to you in heaven, Lord, I praise you that you'll see us as holy and blameless and undefiled. Oh, Father, may we not just toss such truth away or treat it so carelessly, but that, Father, we might embrace it and meditate upon it. I pray, Father, your blessing on us as we go forth and we go forth rejoicing in your Son. Amen.